Our scripture reading this morning comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, and consistent with the way we've been reading together since the beginning of this little book and our study. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read the first, then we'll be together on the second till we get to verse 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we approach this portion of your word this morning with humility and with careful attention to the truth of it all. Lord, I ask that you press upon us the fact that were we not to know this truth, we would be utterly and completely lost. Lord, we ask that you open our mind and our understanding to these words, their meaning. May it come alive to us. May it very well change our lives change everything. These are the things that change everything if we truly believe them. So we ask your blessing on our time together this morning to understand and obey this passage. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, when we last studied Titus together, this past week we had our communion Sunday, but two weeks ago we began chapter 3 of Titus. And we learned in the first two verses, they said this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We understood that to be a description of what we need to be. That's not, by no means an exhaustive list of what it means to be a Christian. There's a lot in the Bible to explain to us what that looks like. But as far as a concise statement of what a Christian should look like, that's a pretty good concise statement. And that last part, perfect courtesy toward all people, is probably as good of a public litmus test. If you're courteous... If you are courteous to people, all people, you're different than most people on this planet. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves once, this is the way we used to be, this is the way the world lives. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Mutual hate on both ends. Again, not an exhaustive list. There's a lot more things to describe 
the world and its lostness than these, but this is a good summary statement, a snapshot, as it were, of what a person would look like without Christ. So what we've got here are polar opposites, what we need to be, what we used to be, and then today we find out how we are able to be what we need to be. How is verses 1 and 2 possible? When most of the world lives in verse number 3. Well that's explained in verse number 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Here it is. He saved us from that. And made us look like himself. Apart from those three words he saved us. There is no hope of those in verse 3 ever attaining even a, a, a semblance of verse 1 and 2. That's what... Paul is explaining, and that's the weight of what we're discussing here today. Verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 is perhaps the most clear and concise snapshot of what Christ has done to make us our, His own and what we ought to be. Now, many people in this world we live in, if you were to consider uh, this secular age of ours, and you were to ask anybody about God and whether or not you can know God and what do you think about God you're probably not going to get much as far as concrete answers to those questions because I think the world collectively assumes that God is not necessarily uh, wanting himself to be known they would say he hasn't made it simple and clear enough we're looking but he's hiding is maybe what you'd get because there's just so many different options, so many different religions. But really, the Bible tells us that the very opposite is true. It's God who's looking for man, and man is hiding from God. And it's been that way since the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve took of the fruit, they were ashamed, the record tells us, and they hid themselves. God came looking for them, asking, where are you? And what is this that you have done? And since then it's been the same with all their descendants. So when we read of the grace of God appearing on the scene and bringing salvation, he's come here looking for us. But sadly enough, the world is not necessarily reciprocating. They're hiding from him. But let's read along as we see how this plan unfolds. This passage will tell us that God saves us. We don't save ourselves. And that might be why the world is so caught up and so confused as to this offer that seems too good to be true. For the vast majority of folks in this room, I think the truth that we're going to cover in this passage is not only familiar to you, but it's your very assurance of your hope in heaven. So these will be an encouragement to you. Even if they are a review, you cannot review this type of material too much or too often. But others of you in this room, and that might just be a handful or even one, maybe you're visiting. I'm still new here myself, so it's harder for me to identify who's visiting and who's been here or who's visiting first time in a long time. But for some, the truth that we're going to look through today might actually challenge your belief, your understanding presuppositions or maybe assumptions about what it means to be saved that's what we're going to be asking the question 
What do you mean saved? When it says he saved us, what does that mean? And we'll try to make it clear enough, not just for those who've been saved a long time, but someone who's never been saved and doesn't exactly know what that means. So we'll let Paul, who's writing, explain to us. And what we're going to see is at least five different parts to the answer to that question. What do you mean saved? Well, there's, there's five different components, things, parts. You can fill in the blank however you want. But why five? Well, because that's the way he's written the explanation. There are at least five, and we'll see these in here clearly. So when we're studying the Bible, we let the Bible give us what the Bible's saying, rather than to say things over on top of the Bible. We let the Bible speak. And here are your five parts, if you'd like to make your notes ahead of time. Number one, a person. Number two, a principle. Number three, a process. Number four, a prospect. And number five, a pattern. And isn't that nice? They all start with the same letter. But those are just words to get us thinking in a specific direction. But those again, person, principle, process, prospect, and pattern. So let's look at number one. And we'll spend different amounts of time on different ones. Some are more important and way more than others. But we start to begin with, with a person looking at those three words. He saved us. When we think of salvation, we must first think of a person. And the question we need to answer is, who is the he and he saved us? Now, we've seen this already in our study, but it's explained in detail, more detail in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, so that's the God of the Bible, but God our Savior, which means his son Jesus Christ, and that Savior, God, has appeared to us. So there was a time where he wasn't here, but now he is or has come. For us, that's 2,000 years ago. But for many, that was in the future. The writer here saw him on the Damascus Road differently than the others did. But the same word for that is in chapter 2, verse 11. If you've got that on the same page, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Same thing, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. So that appearance of God brought with it salvation. He brought it to us. We don't have it in ourselves. God saves us, we don't save ourselves. Now the reference there to the word appeared, it's both in 2.11 and in 3.4. The appearance, the epiphany. We studied this a number of weeks ago. You've heard that word before, but likely you don't use it much. I had an epiphany, an appearance, something that I didn't understand, now I understand. I didn't see it before, I see it now. It makes sense now, though it didn't before. Once it was dark, now it's nice and bright, it's illuminated. So the description here is that for centuries, the working of God with his people to provide a fix for what fell apart in Eden has now become clear. We see it. And we couldn't see it until Christ came himself. So the story here, the person who saved us, is none other than Jesus Christ. The person of salvation is Jesus. Now this is admittedly kind of like watching the middle of an episode in the middle of a series buried deep after many seasons 
and expecting some to make sense of the whole thing. You need to back up and begin watching at the beginning or a set of novels you need to read at the beginning to get the whole story. Because if you don't have the whole story, then it doesn't necessarily make sense. And sometimes it's worth our time to go through these things that we already know, but just to put them in order. I know that some of you, when you go watch one of these big movies in a series, you'll sit at home and you'll watch all the ones you've already seen just to get ready for the new piece of information, right? People do that. Or your show on TV. All that's changing now. People have their shows. They'll wait whole seasons to see what's next. But it's good to rehearse those things. And uh, we'll rehearse some of these that we know to be true so that we know what a precious gift we have in salvation. What are the most ten most important words in all of literature? They're the first ten words of your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's where you have to start in this series. For He saved us to make sense. You've got to start there. If you don't believe that, we've got nothing else to say. You're all dressed up and you have nowhere to go. You've got to start there. And the world has its options for a replacement for what those words are there for. We're trying to figure out where we came from and how we got here. And we as Christians believe that God has always existed. It's hard for us because we're temporal people. We start and we end. We were born and we die. There's a time when we weren't. But as far as God goes, there was never a time when he wasn't. He's always been and that's why there's something here now might hurt your head to think of it this way. But imagine a jar with nothing in it and set it on some eternal shelf forever. How long would it take before you'd have something inside that jar? You'd never have something inside that jar because you can never get something from nothing, right? Unless somebody put something in that jar who'd always been. And it, you can't create yourself. The little kids at the sandbox trying to figure out well, how God made whatever he made and one says to the other, well, who made God? God made himself. God can't make himself because he'd have to be before he was. And no more than you can show up at an appointment tomorrow before you get there. <laughs> Could God make a world before it existed? He had to have always been. And the starter kit from where all this stuff came from came from his own existence. He spoke it into existence. Out of what was nothing aside from him. But he's, this is upper level theological thoughts we're going through. Now the world would say, well, we've got the big bang. Well, what, what banged? What exploded? You, you had something to start with. All the raw ingredients for everything you see here must have exploded and flown out. But then you have the problem of going from chaos to order. How did it get ordered? I could go buy my son another Lego kit. He's got plenty. Take them all out of the little bags, put all the pieces in the box that came in, close the box and shake it until it put itself together. How long would that take? He said it's impossible. Pretty much. Because out of the chaos of those people, even if you left the instructions in the box while you shook it, <laughs> you're not going to get the Legos put together like the instructions say, right? 
But then we think that this thing exploded and then randomly put itself into place enough that life could come into existence. DNA cell structure, even the most simplistic of living organisms, is a lot more complicated than a box of Legos. It's intellectual suicide to think that that's how it happened. So logically speaking, the best place to start is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in six days, he created everything that we see. And on the sixth day, there was man and woman, his crowning creation. And the reason why they were so special is because they bore his image, right? The animals cannot do that. They cannot, in the same way, communicate with God. Man can receive his speech. And they have a moral capacity. And the, the point was for God to display his glory through man and woman in this earth that he's built. For what reason? Because he wanted to. He didn't have to, but he did. And he gave them one requirement in the garden to give them the capacity to obey or disobey. He said, one thing is off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't have that. Everything else you can have. Everything you need, you've got. But you can't have that. And if you take it, I will remove the life that I gave you. Death will be the punishment for disobeying my law. Now what happened? The snake comes along and says, he doesn't mean that. In fact, you'll know things that he knows if you take that. You'll be like him. And even though they had everything they needed, they took what they wanted, which was more than they'd been given. And they ceased from that point to display God's image as they did before. God said when he made them, this is good, right? No longer could he say this is good because part of them was disobedient and evil. So now the, the, the picture, the family portrait, his likeness and image has been smeared and marred. And he did promise them and he would punish that sin with death. But interestingly enough, we expect that that would be game over, right? Test is over, they failed. Wipe it all, start over, throw it away. But even in his punishing them, cursing the ground and the snake and the man and the woman, it seemed there was a glimpse of a hope for some type of restoration down the road in the 15th verse of chapter 3 with he will bruise his heel but he will crush his head and what that all meant well it's pointing to what we just read but it'd take a while to be able to make sense out of that so you've got these people who are still living even though their bodies are dying and the relationship with the Lord is broken and they cannot display his glory like they did before which is what they were designed to do they're still living and they're having children who are having children the first two didn't do very good one killed the other before you know it the whole world's mind is on evil continually is what was said during the days of Noah so God puts four people in a boat and destroys the rest and then after that, you see, as those children multiplied, even though the rainbow promised they'd never be destroyed again, they began to build this tower known as the Tower of Babel. And the Lord said there's no end to what they can do together, unified in disobedience. So he confounded their languages. So it looks as if the whole thing is just spiraling out of control. You get to chapter 12, and God chooses a man named Abraham which is strange because that means father of many and he didn't have any kids 
But God said, I'll make out of you a nation. Changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He still doesn't have any kids. God gives him Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And everything looks great. Till there's a famine, they wind up in Egypt. And then Moses is called to take them out of Egypt to display the Lord's glory. And then God begins to do things in front of these people he's never done before. There are miracles and pillars of cloud and pillars of fire and, and Red Sea opening. And then at the bottom of a mountain with Moses at the top and all the people down there told if you get close to the mountain you'll die. He begins to write out for them all these things he expects. Now, long ago, he told Abraham, I'm covenanting with you. We have a relationship. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. There will be rules. There needs to be rules because I need to show the world who I am. And you all aren't able to display who I am in yourselves. I'll have to give you rigid rules to make you look like me. And in observing those things, it'll point back to me. So you're going to show the world who I am. And at the mountain, the Ten Commandments were given. And how long did it go before the people messed that up too? Were they ever able to show the world the majesty of God's glory through their behavior and the way they treated one another? Never. And the story just goes on and on. When they get to the promised land, because of their disobedience, People in the land made them slaves, killed them. God would give them judges like Gideon or Barak or Deborah or Samson. Everybody knows Samson. All those men were, were flawed men. Samson's probably exhibit A of the most naturally gifted man on the planet who threw every bit of it away because he couldn't say no to his own passions. So then you get... Uh, the last judge was Samuel who became the first prophet and he was the one who God would put his word in his mouth and he would remind people God said it like this it's simple it's not complicated he's our God we're his people if we obey him he'll bless us if we disobey him he'll curse us right didn't work very well we want a king to represent us you don't need a king you've got God well we want a king they chose Saul he was the wrong one then God gave them David, the man after God's own heart. But then David's son Solomon multiplied horses and women. And even though the, the breadth of the kingdom was at its zenith, he only had half a heart for God. And his sons split the kingdom in half. There were good kings and there were bad kings. And ultimately those kingdoms were pulled away in captivity by their captors because God told them, if you disobey me. I won't bless you, I'll curse you. And all along the way, the prophets to remind them, even people like David after God's own heart, David, you're the man. You're not living up to the, the glory of God you were designed to live up to. You're disobedient. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And then there were the priests over the sacrificial systems and spilling the blood of animals to atone for sins, which put in their brains sin costs something for me to be forgiven something has to die just to remind them I'm still going to hold you to my promise if you sin you will die but I'm giving you all the chance in the world to listen to me to be my people as I'm your God 
So you've got all this history to show one thing is clear. They can't do it. Even with a rule book, here, do this. It only showed the fact that they can't do it. So after years and years and episodes and episodes and seasons and seasons of this long drawn out story, and this is where I really want to ask the world when they ask the question, why is there only one way to heaven? Why can't it be so many different religions? Why is it just, got, for you Christians, why is it just one way? I want to ask the question, why is there any way at all? They've made it clear. They can't do this. They don't want to do this. Given the option with it on a silver platter, God's looking for them and they're running from him. So in the fullness of time, God says, I'll go myself. I'll do for them what they could never do. What Adam could not do, I will do. I will live an obedient life. It's just something the world has never seen before. And that is what we just read. For the grace of God has appeared. That's him. The sinless one. Bringing salvation. Well, how does that work? Well, that's what this passage is for. And that there served as uh, your introduction, by the way. <laughs> but now that we're up to speed, does it all fit together? We've learned we can't do this. It'll have to be done for us. If it happens at all, his name is Jesus. He is the person of salvation. So let's look at the principle. How does it work? If we've got the person who can make it happen, we can't, he can. On what basis? What's the principle? Well, look at verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So there's where we get into the idea, God saves us, we don't save ourselves. And we're getting into other theological truths that are displayed uh, vividly in other places in Scripture. But there's a negative and a positive there. The, the first is the negative. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. And this is one reason why people get hung up on the gospel, I think. You think with me. You're telling someone who doesn't know these things. If you were to say, this is how you get to heaven. Do this, that, and the other. You might have a few that would stand up for that. I'll give it a shot. But if you start out of the gate with, oh, that's hopeless. There's nothing you can do to be saved at all. You're doomed. But there's somebody else who's done it for you. All you got to do is put your life in his hands. The person might say, I wouldn't give my car keys to someone. Why would I give my eternity after I'm dead to someone I've never met? Well, let me introduce you to him. He's the one that made you. Okay, well, maybe that's different. Maybe he's got his best interest, my best interest in mind in so doing. Exactly. Well, then there's the positive, but according to his own mercy. Do you know the difference between mercy and grace? What mercy is, what grace is? Mercy is not getting something you deserve. Say I warned the kids, stop running in the house, you're going to knock the lamp over. They keep running, they knock the lamp over. I told you if you knock the lamp over, I'm going to punish you. So they knock the lamp over, there's punishment. But mercy would be withholding the punishment. Grace would be giving them something they don't deserve. All right, get in the car, let's go for ice cream. 
Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. So he's saying here, but by his mercy, he's going to withhold something we deserve, which is punishment called death for sins. But we're not going to get that. Here's another thing we need to tell the lost world that I think they get misunderstood. We must understand it as well. Who goes to heaven, good people or bad people? Saved people. There's no such thing as good people, by the way. So heaven is full of bad people. Saved by grace. They're all bad people. There's bad people in hell. There's bad people in heaven. The difference, he saved the ones that are in heaven. But it doesn't mean they're good. Always been one of the ways the gospel is made confusing. So many people, despite what it teaches, think that heaven is for those whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Got to make it clear in our witnessing, in our explanation, that the Bible doesn't teach that. Nobody's going into heaven because they've been good. In fact, your, your goodness, your self-perceived goodness might actually keep you from heaven. Because a person who thinks they're good doesn't think they need a Savior. Number three, the process. This is the rest of verse five. By the washing of regeneration... And renewal of the Holy Spirit being justified by His grace. Now in that verse there's at least three different theological components. And I only want to major on one of them. But the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is being reborn. Born again. Again born. Like Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Think of a, a, a butterfly. It was a worm. Went into the uh, the whatever they call those things, the hatch out of, comes out a butterfly. He's been reborn. Or metamorphosis is another word similar to that. We call that theologically regeneration. And there's a time in one's life where their affections, their nature goes from being bent toward oneself and sin and being bent toward God and repentance. And it should be clear as a bell. This should be, it's a pivot point. And just like when you ask somebody, do you know when you were born? Well, yeah. Because even if you went and visited that day, there's a part before they're born, still inside. And a part after they're born, now they're out and they're crying and everybody's taking pictures. There's, there's a birth. And spiritually speaking, there is a birth. There's a transition, a pivot and he says this happens. The process of being saved is a regeneration, going from dead in your trespasses to alive. And just like you need to show signs of a healthy birth, a live birth physically, you need to eat, you need to crawl, you need to talk, you need to learn things. The same is true, spiritually speaking. There will be evidence of your birth, your rebirth. But then there's the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The renewal is a progressive thing where regeneration happens in a moment you're born the renewal being less like your old self and more like your new self less like verse 3 hating and hated by everyone more like verse 1 and 2 showing courtesy to all people that's a process that doesn't take place in a half hour visit in the pastor's office after you walk an aisle wouldn't it be nice if it was you're going to have ups and downs, three steps forward, two steps back. But it's a process you're either involved in or you're not because you weren't born. It wasn't a live birth. 
And then the last one that I, I, I want to make sure I get clear is justification. So that being justified by His grace in verse 7. Justified by His grace. Tense is past. So to the one who's saved, that's already taken place. The payment's already been paid. Let me read to you from Erickson out of a theological book. Certain aspects of the doctrine of salvation relate to the matter of one's standing with God. The individual's legal status must be changed from guilty to not guilty. This is a matter of one being declared just or righteous in God's sight, of being viewed as fully meeting the divine requirements. The theological term here is justification. One is justified by being brought into a legal union with God. Man was designed to bear God's image. Man sinned and was no longer able to bear God's image. This goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. And they're stuck in that process until the grace of God appears. And the payment for the sacrifice, the payment for the sin, the sacrifice for sin. When God said, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Death is the punishment. Its only place in the world was because of sin. And if you sin, you will die. Unless, of course, someone else stands in your spot and takes your punishment for you. And if you trust in that, God the Father, who's the judge, who promised death to begin with, looks at his son and his sacrifice, sees that you've put your trust in him and says, acquitted. I'll let you go free. I will change the legal status from condemned to saved. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is justification. Therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. This is Romans 5. So one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. Here it is. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience. Who's the one man who disobeyed to start with? Adam. The many were made sinners. Who's that? Us. So by one man's obedience, who's that? Jesus. The many will be made righteous. Who's that? I hope most of us. Not all of us. Justification is that act of God whereby he counts our sins to be Christ's and Christ's righteousness to be ours. My favorite verse in all the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. King James Version, ESV, NASB, it's all kind of wordy, but the point is this. The man who knew nothing about sin was made sin on the cross. And the people who knew nothing about righteousness was given his righteousness in exchange for their sins. We take his righteousness, he takes our sin. That is legal justification, and it's God's offer of salvation to you and me. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the whole ball of wax. That's everything. That's what we get excited about. If you ever worried what you would do when you get to heaven, and it's judgment, what do I do? Do I get in? Am I locked out? People think through that type of thing. And even Jesus, in talking to people about the judgment, he actually said, there will be many on that day who say, haven't we done this, that, and the other 
in your name. And they're going to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. Now what's the problem with, I did this in your name? It's not how you get in. It's not by works of your righteousness. You can't do it. You don't save yourself. He saves you. What would the proper response be? Why should I let you into heaven? You shouldn't. I'm lost. But your son paid for me and for some reason gave me the understanding to actually ask for it. He saved me. His blood has given me righteousness. You're in. Because of the work of Jesus. Not because of what you've done. So you say you're going to heaven, someone might ask. And then they might follow up. How can you be so arrogant to think that you are going to heaven? When a whole world has no idea whether or not they are or aren't. Your answer is, there's nothing special about me. So I'm not so arrogant. In fact, I'm no different than you or anybody else. This is about justification. I've been acquitted. He took my sins and I took his righteousness. I'm no better than you. I just have better news. What's the news? When the grace and loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us. That's the good news. So here's your prospect. We go through these quickly because we're, we're, we're done, really. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's verse 7. That means you're part of the family. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? That's a tough question, even for religious people. They want to say, well, I hope so. I'm trying real hard. Well, either you're part of the family or you're not. And if you're part of the family, you're in. And you can be sure of that. But it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with justification. If a person doesn't understand justification, they won't be able to answer that question. And then number five is the pattern. And true to form of the letter of Titus written by Paul, he goes back to this pattern of the way we ought to be acting and living because of the fact that he saved us. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. You take this to the bank. I want you to insist on these things. This is Paul to Titus. Preach this stuff to the top of your lungs so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote how many of you think careful is a small word? How many of you think devote is a small word? Devotion, being careful. That, that's your effort. Devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, the last time I taught this passage, something happened in our family that gave me a way to illustrate something here that I thought was, was good and fit the sermon happened to be part of uh, something that went on in our family. And I try to use my family illustrations sparingly. There's nothing worse than having to sit in church and listen to a guy talk about his kids all the time. Um, but I thought this was unique. This was a couple of years ago. And uh, in Ringgold, it's not like here in Fuquay, we don't have a trash man come by and pick up our trash. We have to go to the dump which in the county there's these big green boxes, dumpsters, and you haul your own trash to the dump. And when you don't get out much, it's exciting for the kids to ride with mom or dad to the dump. Uh, so that's what we're, we're doing on this, this one afternoon. Actually, it was my wife 
And all the kids are with her, the back of the minivan, they've got trash, and they go to the dump. But it's pouring rain that day. She gets the trash emptied and is about to drive off when she notices that somebody is knocking on her window. And she window won't roll down. It was the other van. I hadn't fixed that yet. So she has to... Uh, unlock the doors and, and open the door so the lady can get in. And what had happened was she had emptied her trash and locked herself out of her car in the rain with her phone inside the car. So her request, a little bit panicked, was, can I use your phone to call my sister who's at work so she can come get me? And of course, Corey is accommodating and uh, trying to make sure I remember this story right because I'm pretty sure my kids are watching this over the live stream while they're still at the coast. Um, But she's able to sit with this lady for some time as it rains while her sister comes from town to get her other set of keys to let her in her car, which is running with her phone in it. So they make conversation back and forth. And at some point, my son, Michael, some of you know Michael, as opposed from Benjamin or David, he walks through the middle of the van, you know, they have an aisle, and stands between the two front seats where my wife and this guest of theirs is sitting while it rains. And, uh, you know, sometimes children will say something to you about a person when the person's right there, (laughs) as if they're not right there. But what Our son Michael says, he says, Mommy, I just had a thought. Maybe this is so we can tell her about Jesus. Now, this is the kind of thing that Christian parents love to hear their children say. But please don't misunderstand the Mooneyham family. There's way more things they've told their Sunday school teachers that I wish they didn't say. Okay? So we're human just... But the the innocence of that precious little comment was one of these good works, I believe, that, that, that this little book of Titus is on about. And the reaction to that little act of kindness was what really made the point. Because this, this woman got so excited, she said, I do know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I go to church over here. And she gets emotional. And she said, this is a bad day. I got locked out of my car. And what do I find but a family of children who let me sit and impose on their day and schedule and their little one tell me about Jesus. This world is a rotten place. This right here makes all the difference in the world. And then on the other part, when I'm listening to the story before it got to the good part, I'm thinking, oh no, no, you don't do that. That's a setup. She locked herself out of the car on purpose so she can rob you. (laughs) Because that's the way this world works. They hate each other because they're hated by each other. They live for themselves. They're enslaved to passions and pleasures. It's all about them. It has been since the garden when they took what God said shouldn't be theirs. And they no longer represent him or his character. Unless, of course, they're saved. The whole hope of verse 8, which is profitable for people, these good works that we're careful to devote ourselves to, is because he saved us. 
The only hope of the world, knowing who God is, is one of his image bearers, looking like him, to get the message across. You see how this little book all comes together around our character and a lost world who needs to be saved as we have been. That's what this is about. Who gave himself for us to redeem from us all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the question today is, have you been saved? Not are you attending church. Not are you being honest on your income tax. Young people. Doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you attend the youth group. I hope you do. Or if you're saving yourself for marriage, which you should. All of that will come out of whether or not you're actually alive, born, born alive, alive again, born again, saved. Has he saved you? Has he, have you asked him to save you? It doesn't matter how old you are, man, woman, older, younger, are you saved? Now, none of this in here made it look like it was complicated or meant to be hidden or any more complicated than just asking the Lord. Okay, I get it. I see it. It has dawned on me. I want it. Save me and you'll be saved. It's that easy. Now, usually I go to the back door after the service and this service has gone a little longer because of the material we had to get through to do it clearly. I'm going to stick around front this morning, as well as David Brown and Seth Carter. And any one of you who has any questions about this, I want to be saved. Do not leave this place. Come talk to us. Let us have the opportunity to make it as clear as it can be. We want you to be a recipient of this grace that's appeared, brought to earth by God the Son, Jesus, for your redemption. So that's my invitation. I know altar calls are a little out of character for this church. And in time, we'll learn each other and how that works. But the gospel invitation this morning is to be saved. If you are interested, you come talk to us after the service is over. But between now and then, we're going to sing a hymn. To God be the glory. Because there's no other thing to give a God who would give us salvation but to give him glory. As image bearers. To glorify him as our creator. And as you sing through those words, let them, as they're thought through in your brain, be your actual praise to him. Coincidentally, in Sunday school today, we talked about the greatest story of salvation, if there is a greatest. And that would be when the thief on the cross turned to Jesus and cried, remember me when you end your kingdom. You know, we're all going to leave here. That's a fact. So my prayer is that he'll remember each and every one of us when we get there. Amen.